visit our website at adph.org. That's adph.org. Brought to you by the Alabama Department of Public Health and this station. I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. Okay. I'm not going to sit here and debate. Money point seven. Good morning. Welcome to the Movie Talk Show here on 90.7 The Capstone. My name is Corey Kraft. We have lots to discuss today, including Esquire Magazine's story on Roger Ebert, Martin Scorsese's latest film, Shutter Island, and more Oscar chatter. And I'm Ben Flanagan, and our guest is the former senior critic for Premiere Magazine, which became Premiere.com. Currently, he continues his daily reviews and musings of theatrical releases, as well as DVDs of all sorts on his blog, which you can read at somecamerunning.typepad.com. You can also read his contributions to the Auteurs Notebook at theauteurs.com, and from time to time at msn.com. And before we delve any deeper into the murky waters of the always, uh, and at least amusing, but essentially pointless Oscar discussion, let me chide the Academy for perhaps the worst snub since Paul Giamatti got the shaft for Sideways in 2004. Mr. Glenn Kinney, welcome back to the program. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here as always. Well, I've got a quick question. Um, do you yeah. feel that there's some sort of reckless and personal agenda on the part of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences against you and or the erotic connoisseur? Well, certainly against the erotic connoisseur, that's uh, that's uh, an absolute given. I think that uh, you know it's uh, it's tough when you do a part like that uh, so convincingly. People tend to confuse your performance for the real thing, and I think there's also a little matter of uh, one of the film companies involved not even listing it as uh, as a potential candidate for awards, which might have something to do with its distribution pattern, which was. Uh, video on demand before theatrical. In any case, the whole thing is a mess, and, you know, I had had my tuxedo taken out of mothballs and was ready to uh, ready to head out for the coast, uh, and uh, I wasted a morning getting up. Well, of course... You know, my screen time and girlfriend experience is equivalent to, if not greater than, several um, Academy Award-winning supporting actor performances. Uh, for instance, Beatrice Strait in uh, <laughs> Network, or... Dame Judy Dench in uh, Shakespeare in Love. Both of them have uh, sort of equally scant screen time, but make an equally potent impression. Well, you co-starred in director Steven Soderbergh's film, The Girlfriend Experienced, as you mentioned. And look, I'm not one to suck up, although I'm more than grateful that you joined us today. But you were partially responsible for one of my favorite sequences of 2009, which is what you might call the breakup or bad review sequence in that film that featured the Freedom Tickler song, Hot Tub. Um, That's the, Yeah. Yeah, very, very, very moving stuff in that movie. Yeah, well, it, it was interesting how, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, that made the film interesting for me to watch, um, and I do think, uh, you know, I, I, I do like it very much as a film. I think it's one of Soderbergh's stronger efforts. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing that uh, he did in that picture was, that, you know, take the scenario, which was basically a pretty straightforward uh, piece written by my uh, longtime friends Brian Koppelman and David Levine, who also wrote Ocean's 13 for Soderbergh, and having having shot the scenes in the, uh, in the scenario, he 
then sort of threw up all the pieces in, in the editing room and edited in a very nonlinear fashion. So what ends up happening in the picture is that you get the breakup and the uh, sort of devastating career hit in the in the uh, erotic connoisseur review all at the same time. And it's that point where you really feel for, uh, for Sasha's character, uh, Chelsea slash Christine. And uh, I think the way he manipulated those elements... Uh, and then, you know, had, instead of wrapping it up there, had another 15 minutes of a sort of life goes on um, thing for the character. It was really uh, ingenious and, uh, and exciting. Right, and before we get down to the nitty-gritty of our show today, um, could you please just kind of tell us about how you were approached to fill this, you know, I guess what would you call a flattering role? Uh, did <laughs> Soderbergh, did his light bulb just burst into flames when he read the script and just say, look, I know the perfect guy for this part? no. Actually, it was a. Uh, it was through Brian and David that the part was offered to me. What the idea of the picture was was uh, to get people who, and this is going to sound really bad uh, on the uh, outset, uh, to get people who were sort of as close to the parts in real life um, as possible, which was possible in certain respects. For instance, uh, the journalist in the film who interviews uh, Chelsea slash Christine is played by Mark Jacobson, who's a real journalist, actually a, uh, a longtime uh, idol of mine. I was I didn't meet him until after uh, the shoot, but it was a real pleasure to meet up with someone I'd been reading with so much pleasure since the mid-'70s. So Mark Jacobson's, in, in a sense, playing a, a variant of himself. The boyfriend of... of, of um, of Sasha Gray's character is played by a guy who's an actual personal trainer, Chris Santos. Uh, his client, Peter Zizzo, is a you know his real client, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the two parts that you couldn't actually fill with their real life equivalents are the lead role because you're not going to get a real life escort to play herself in a uh, fictional film. I mean, you could, but you know it would probably be rather difficult. And the erotic connoisseur. The thing that. Uh, a lot of people don't necessarily know about this character, and this is a character who reviews uh, escorts or prostitutes on the Internet, is that it's based on actual reality. There are websites out there called, with names like Big Doggy or The Erotic Review, where guys who have solicited and paid for the services of prostitutes uh, who advertise on Craigslist and, and other places actually rate them and recommend them. And they're, uh, by and large, pretty... They're not well liked by the uh, <laughs> by escorts, as you can imagine, but they do exist. Uh, but since what they do is, um, you know, uh, involves activities of, of, of at, at the very least questionable legality, you know, because you do Johns Johns get uh, booked as, as 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 much, if not more so, than than prostitutes in some cases. You're not going to get a guy who reviews. Uh, escorts or prostitutes on the internet to play himself, and you're not going to get a guy who's going to play himself in such an unflattering fashion. I mean, this character essentially tries to uh, extort uh, sex from uh, Sasha's character and then uh, trashes her. So, you know, obviously, you know, and the funny thing is that when, right before the film was coming out, the founder of one of these real-life websites, The Erotic Review, was actually arraigned on charges of conspiracy to commit murder, and there were uh, also suspicions which weren't um, brought up in the arraignment uh, pertaining to him doing exactly what my character does in the film, that is, uh, 
you know, uh, getting free sex from escorts in exchange for the promise of a positive review. So this is all based on reality, but obviously, you know, you weren't going to get someone who really did that. Uh, but they wanted the character to have a certain kind of uh, pontificating uh, glib quality and also to know something about the Internet. So Brian and David, uh, Brian Kaufman and David Levine, uh, the screenwriters, thought that I could do a good job, and they suggested it to Soderbergh, who I have had a, a, a passing acquaintance with. We now know each other better. Um, over the years, we met, I think, when he was bringing the Limey to the Toronto Film Festival and got along. And so Stephen uh, approved it, and uh, we did it. It was, uh, you know, it was a pretty, it was a pretty simple transaction. Uh, pretty simple transaction. I say the word transaction, referring to a movie that's uh, all about transactions. <laughs> Well, that's great. The movie is now available on uh, DVD for those of you out there, and it did uh, find a place in my top ten of 2009. I loved it, along with his other film, The Informant. Now, let's jump right into this Shutter Island discussion. Now, we were going to discuss this a while back, but we figured um, when we could get you on the show, we would definitely touch upon the new Martin Scorsese movie, which should be a big deal any time of the year. So I think that this topic is certainly still relevant, and its performance at the box office certainly proves that as well. Now, this movie is based on Dennis Lehane's novel and is set in 1954, and it involves two U.S. Marshals investigating the disappearance of a murderess who escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane, called Ashcliffe in the movie, and she's presumed to be hiding somewhere on remote Shutter Island. Now, needless to say, one marshal, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he embarks on his own personal journey within the island and manages... Uh, to challenge his own sanity. The film is currently playing nationwide and more specifically at the Cobb Hollywood 16 here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Mr. Kenny, I've been slightly critical of this decade's Martin Scorsese, not because the movies are all totally bad, but because we have expectations for filmmakers like him that achieve so much with prolific and groundbreaking work that separates them from your average or even decent directors. And while Gangs of New York and The Aviator and The Departed, they have all got their moments, none of them really capture that raw Scorsese feeling that might remind you there's a genius at the helm. All of them sort of hover in that zone of mediocrity, I'd say, only when you compare you know, them to the quality of his previous efforts that left really permanent marks on film history. In fact, I don't think we've really shared a pure Martin Scorsese experience since 1995's Casino, and people were awfully critical of that back then. Now, my first question to you, do your thoughts on Scorsese's current career path, do they reflect mine, or does Shutter Island's mind-bending trip into Teddy Daniels' consciousness wander down a road that once made Scorsese a great filmmaker? Um, you know, I... <laughs> I like Shutter Island an awful lot. I think it is uh, uh, by far, um, for, to, to me, the best of the four pictures that Scorsese has directed starring Leonardo DiCaprio. I think it is, in a sense, uh, a return to uh, the raw emotion of a film like Raging Bull, or even, as I've said uh, prior uh, to that, uh, his 1969 short, The Big Shave, uh, which is a three-minute film about a guy in which a guy goes into a glittering white bathroom, begins to shave with a safety razor, and continues to shave even though he's cutting his face open constantly and leaves the bathroom a bloody mess. It's an interesting metaphor. Um, that said, uh, you know, that the emotional content of Shutter Island is kind of not buried, but it's, um, it's, 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 um, it, it walks hand in hand with uh, the, the elements that make it a commercial hit, the uh, the uh, horror genre elements, the uh, surprise ending twist elements, things like that, um, 
that make it uh, more palatable for commercial audiences, but I think it also has a very, very strong uh, personal component. It's like Raging Bull. It's about uh, a hero who cannot stop hurting himself no matter how much he might want to, and it's a powerful, to me at least, a powerful uh, uh, statement. The, the fact of the matter is, when you talk about Scorsese, is that you know, he is not the same, you know, I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. I, I, I think that anything he does is at least going to be interesting. I mean, if we talk about mediocrity, I don't know if you've looked at The Aviator recently, but in, just in terms of sheer visual style and, and kinetic energy in the cutting, that's about as far away from mediocrity, I think, as, as, as commercial Hollywood filmmaking gets, you know? Um, maybe the, in terms of content and so on, it might not be quite so overwhelming, but just in terms of, 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 of bravura visual filmmaking, it's, it's, it's right up there. But um, let's, you know, <clears throat> the guy is 67 years old. He's not, you know, he's, he, he has, he's risen to a certain level of prominence in Hollywood and in the international film community. He has all sorts of outside interests. He runs a film preservation foundation that has several arms, uh, you know, several subsidiaries coming out of it. He, you know, supports several children's, probably some ex-wives, and archiving uh, you know, an archiving concern. Um, you know, this is a guy who has not enjoyed the most robust health throughout his life. He was born asthmatic, and now he's 67 years old. He's not going to strap a camera to his shoulder and go out on the streets again. That's pretty much a given. Um, he's going to continue to make films under the circumstances under which he's made these films, which is, you know, fr from... From uh, from the Aviator on, which is you know with the support of a of a fairly major studio and at a level of um, sort of you know whatever level of personal and fiscal comfort can be provided. These are not these were not you know uh, Shutter Island was not an easy shoot physically. You know if you look at those locations, I mean there's a lot of CGI in there, but there's a lot of locations in there, and he doesn't like to uh, you know if given his druthers, he probably wouldn't wouldn't you know, leave his house most of the time. So, you know, he's still working. He's still in there. But he's in a late period, and uh, he's doing things a certain way. You know, he's not a young man anymore. He's, like I said, 67 years old. The kind of films he's going to make are going to befit, A, what his interests are thematically, but also, and this is an unfortunate, um, you know, kind of um, product of, of the business of the era, the things he can actually get made, you know, Luis Benuel at the end of his career had teamed up with a visionary producer made, named Serge Silberman, who essentially enabled him and Jean Claude Carrière to make whatever script they 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 had written or wanted to, you know, sequentially. And if you look at films like The Milky Way uh, or The Phantom of Liberty, I mean, aside from being wonderful, you look at them and you think, Good God! How did this get made? I mean, you can't even conceive of films like that being made in Europe now, in Europe. So, you know, these are the realities of the situation. Um, so whether or not it's, you know, necessarily um, germane to take them into consideration when looking at the work, there are some people who argue, no, you, you can't consider circumstances. You have to look at the work only. I don't know. Um, but to me, Shutter Island is a, is a pretty strong piece of work and, uh, you know, a, a very... Uh, you know, 
he's definitely making something with all the apparatuses that uh, a big studio and, 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 a, and a large budget can offer. And clearly, he's on some artistic level, you know, enjoying uh, what that can afford him. I wanted to talk a little bit about the polarizing response Shutter Islands received from uh, many of our nation's critics. Um, the one that comes to mind is is A.O. Scott's review in the New York Times, who concludes that the movie is is pretty awful, and and says, and I quote: "There are, of course, those who will resist this conclusion in part out of loyalty to Mr. Scorsese, a director to whom otherwise hard-headed critics are inclined to extend the benefit of the doubt." Now, I'm a huge admirer of Shutter Island. Um, and are, are, what, what is what is uh, what is your response, I guess, to the, the the polarizing response to Shutter Island? Are we all just in the tank for uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, or or are we? What, what's going on here? Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I have very serious objections to that um, statement by uh, by A.O. Scott, who I am friendly with and who's a, a good guy and I think a good critic. I think that. Uh, he, um, I think he's wrong, and um, but he didn't start this argument. The argument has been started on the internet, you know, in comments threads and by different bloggers. Jeffrey Wells of Hollywood Elsewhere put this forward. Um, you know, I think here's what I think: if you're going to accuse, I don't think it'll do to accuse critics on mass of having bad faith. You know what? If you're gonna, you know, and this is this is this kind of uh, this kind of kind of sticks in my craw because I, I I'm I'm kind of uh, I've had moments in my uh, blogging career where I've uh, sort of flown off the handle and uh, you know established something of a reputation as a bit of an internet gadfly where I uh, will take certain critics to task and maybe that's appropriate and maybe it's not appropriate but you know I think it's um, I think if you're going to take critics to task, you should take critics to task for specific things, and you should take specific critics to task rather than weasel out of your... You know, I think, in essence, you weasel out of your argument by saying, there are some who would say... I mean, that's three weasel uh, weasel words in, in, in one pronouncement. Some who would, you know. No, tell me who they are and what they say, and then we'll talk, you know. Don't give me this nonsense about uh, uh, ordinarily hard-hearted. So I think, you know, so I object to the pronouncement on that level, uh, first off. Secondly, you know, um, I just, you know, if you yeah, and, 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 and that, that, that's, the, that's the real nub of it. If you're going to accuse people of bad faith, you know, don't dance around the issue. Just do, do it or don't do it, you know? Uh, and people do this on the internet all the time on other topics too. Especially, you know, I love this thing where people like go. Everybody else loves this movie, but I'm not that into it. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And I'm like, just stop being so wishy-washy. If you don't like the movie and you think you can make an argument, make your damn argument. But don't, don't, don't bore me with your trivial, self-indulgent twaddle. You know, if you want to try. Tr- you want to take something down, give it a shot, you know, come out with your barrels blazing, but don't, don't dance around these issues. So the, the whole issue of carrying water for Scorsese, it's like, okay, who is doing it and how? Then we'll talk. <laughs> Our guest is Glenn Kinney, uh, whose blog you can read at somecamerunning.typepad.com. Look, I love Shutter Island. Uh, I think it's a challenging movie. 
um, especially to mainstream audiences. This is a very unusual studio film. My attention never wandered throughout the entire movie. I was always interested in Teddy's motives and his personal agenda against this mysterious institution headed by the very creepy Ben Kingsley and guys like Max von Sydow. You know, to me, Scorsese, he really isn't lollygagging his way through a passion project that barely appeals to his filmmaking sensibilities. And I think he found something unique and horrifying that was just complete with the bookending Pendereki music, which we heard just a little bit ago. I think that he found something he loved and something that he wanted to translate quite clearly to his audience and others. I've heard several people uh, in theaters or in, in my theater when I saw it the first Friday it was out, once the credits went up, they said, and this was, this, this was several people, they said, that was really not what I expected at all, but I really liked it. I think that they were going in expecting just a, a fairly accessible Leonardo DiCaprio thriller. Um, I think Shutter Island is a, a completely unique experience that I applaud the studio for releasing, and hopefully we'll see more of our beloved filmmakers who are in their twilight years like this man take the chances that Scorsese took with this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Look, and 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 you 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 um, mentioned something there that I think is really pertinent, which is um, you know, in order for the movie to work uh, for the viewer, you really do have to uh, hook into and um, to a certain extent empathize, or at least be curious about about Leo and the, about Teddy Daniels, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, because the film, uh, you know, eventually is his story. And, uh, and and a sad um, story it is. So, um, for me, it's not about the twist or anything. Although, it is great when you see the film a second time, knowing what happens and watching the way people act and talk and react to each other, and it adds a whole other layer that you can sort of pick apart um, endlessly in and of itself. Not in a nitpicky sort of... Uh, you know, gas squad way, but, uh, you know, why do you think that was there and this was there and so on? And, um, you know, I remember when the trailer came out and there was the little bit where uh, Kingsley's character, the uh, the head of the uh, institution, was saying, it's as if she disappeared, as if she evaporated into thin air, and people were like, what is up with that? You know, why is he, t this is ridiculous, uh, how can this expect to be taken seriously? And when you see the film for the second time, you understand exactly what's going on and why that line reading is what it is. So, you know, all sorts of little things like that become uh, more evident uh, when the uh, when the picture is uh, seen a second time. And uh, but it's a different thing than uh, even something like uh, the Sixth Sense, which uh, you know some people have compared this to. Um, where uh, you know the dimensions that uh, that uh, appear when you when you see it a second time are 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 also emotional ones for sure. Well, I might be different uh, than you know m most folks out there, but that trailer and that line specifically is what really drew me to this movie. Seeing a Martin Scorsese horror film, it almost looked like Martin Scorsese directing a good Stephen King novel. Yeah. Um. I, I'm of the opinion that Leonardo DiCaprio has seldom been better than he is in this movie, and he goes to some surprising places, particularly near the ending. Um, I was I was wondering what you thought about the performances in the movie. We've touched on Ben Kingsley, of course, who who gives a great supporting role uh, for the first time in what feels like forever, uh, but um, also the ensemble of one scene. Uh, wonders uh like like uh patricia clarkson and um sure and um oh no it's you know 
and uh, you know the appearance of three members of the uh, of the Zodiac Repertory Company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Mark Ruffalo um, and uh, John Carroll Lynch and um, Elias Kateas. Yeah, Eli- yep. Elias Kateas. Uh, Elias Kateas as Robert De Niro at the end of <laughs> Cape Fear. Um, yeah, um, you know, actors. You know. Actors love to work with Scorsese. Actors have loved to work with Scorsese forever, you know, uh, as far back as, uh, you know, Ellen Burstyn picking Scorsese to direct Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore just because of, you know, even though the theme didn't seem to be something that would be up his alley, but just because of the way the actors in Mean Streets were, you know. Um, so, and they all, they all, you know, Ruffalo, you know, I think DiCaprio is terribly underrated. You know, people are like, oh, that accent. The accent's fine. I think his physical acting in this picture is fantastic. The uh, the final walk that he makes at the uh, in the film's second oh, to last yeah, shot absolutely. is very, very moving. Uh, so I think he's fine. I think Ruffalo is really fantastic. I mean, particularly uh, the layering of his performance, the 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 sort of sad sympathy that that he shows in in such. Um, subtle ways he's great I, I i i've you know it's it's my you know it's my favorite thing he's done since since zodiac um and what a what a great movie zodiac was huh yeah, <laughs> yeah yo, I'm, I'm, y'all are two on one here you <laughs> know, yeah I'm, that's I'm my favorite movie of the decade oh wow yeah okay well um but you know and and clarkson's performance um yeah, I think everybody in the picture just acquits themselves beautifully including kingsley and and such a treat to see von Sydow. Um, who's a, who's who's you know? I had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of years ago, and and who is just a, a remarkable person as well as a, as a great actor, and so wonderful to see him. And he's so he's so he's he's a very he's a hugely intelligent person, and he makes such smart and interesting and 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 funny choices in in this role, uh, which could have been. Uh, you know, very much a, a genre cliche, but of course Scorsese and, and wouldn't let it, and 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 that level of care, you know, is is evident from the casting and and the performances as well as almost every other element of the picture. Yeah, and while we're dropping names here, I think that it's the cast is very interesting here because they're not really featured throughout the film. They're sort of given these special guest appearance by um, moments, and you know. Let's not forget Jackie Earl Haley's really kind sure. of creepy diversion. And then also Ted Levine, Ted Levine. as the warden in uh, completely creepy scene that I think Very really it, it continued to set such a great tone for this Martin Scorsese film. And again, look, Shutter Island is open in theaters everywhere. Uh, it's still around. It's still making... Uh, pretty decent money at the box office it opened at 40 million dollars which was a huge surprise to me and it's playing in tuscaloosa at the Cobb hollywood 16 let's take a quick song break um but when we come back uh we'll get into some uh oscar chatter as well as the esquire article about roger ebert and his television appearance that he made this past week so stick around in uh, in honor of our guest here glenn kenny who was a co-star in the steven soderbergh film the girlfriend experience here is freedom tickler with hot tub and that is featured in the film stick around this is the movie talk show we'll be right back break yourself fool money points ever
Welcome back to the Movie Talk Show on 90.7. Uh, my name is Corey Kraft. I'm joined today by my co-host Ben Flanagan and our special guest, film critic Glenn Kenny, whose blog you can find at somecamerunning.typepad.com. Now, one of the most interesting stories coming out of the film critic community in the past few weeks is the reemergence of Roger Ebert into the public eye with an Esquire profile, The Essential Man, written by Chris Jones, and his recent appearance on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Of course, visitor, uh, regular visitors to RogerEbert.com will know that he's been doing some really terrific work in the last few years since the loss of his voice uh, due to surgery complications to cancer. Um, but we haven't seen Ebert really re-enter the public eye in such a way as we have in the past few weeks. Now, to our guest, Mr. Kenny, I'm curious as to whether you've run into Ebert in the past, uh, if you've ma maintained any kind of relationship with him, and just what you think of the Esquire piece and where he now stands as a critical voice. You know, um, I've met Roger uh, once or twice. I guess the last real long conversation we had was, it was quite some time ago, actually. It was, uh, must, let me, uh, let me, see if uh, it was at a dinner for Denzel Washington uh, when he had made uh, Antoine Fisher. Uh, so that was quite a while ago. I ran into Chaz, his, his wonderful wife, uh, and had a nice uh, chat with her last time I was at Cannes, which was uh, 2008. Um, and, um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, I, last time I, I really chatted with him was 2002. Um you know, he's he's just been amazing in terms of uh, of uh, of his courage, his determination, his 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 uh, his work ethic. Uh, you know, and, you know if you followed the travise of his uh, of his health uh, issues, you know, being in a in a facility to uh, to to get rid of, uh, to, to, to treat one thing, and then falling and breaking his hip. I mean, you know, it's just the guy, uh, you know, there was a period where the guy seemed to not be able to catch a break at all, you know, and, and having, because of losing his inability not just to speak, but to uh, take in solid foods or liquids uh, orally. He cannot, he literally cannot eat food the way you and I do. He has to get every, all of his nutrition through, uh, through uh, through you know IV intake and so on. So I mean that's uh, horrific, um, and you know, new technology has enabled him to really maintain his voice. Although you know when he when he goes on television, talks on Oprah, he, you know what you hear is something like uh, the the what what you get with someone like um, Stephen Hawking, who 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 is afflicted with uh, with um, a disease which, uh, you know, renders him unable to speak. Um, but, you know, Roger will, you know, has this blog where he posts incredibly voluminously and writes very poignantly uh, about his life and his memories and his work with Gene Siskel and uh, talks very frankly about his illness. He has a Twitter account where he, uh, you know, takes little uh, shots at, uh, you know, political figures and so on. He's gotten into... Uh, you know, uh, John Nolte over at Big Hollywood, the conservative movie site, supposed movie site. I don't know. They really don't really know that much about movies. But, you know, uh, Nolte, you know, noticed that, um, you know, Ebert took a jab at Sarah Palin, oh, you know, who's, who's, who's 
the movement's equivalent of the Virgin, the Blessed Virgin, uh, and and you know mentioned tea bagging, and you know he just uh, initiated several meat tossing contests for his uh, <laughs> animal animal clack to toss around over there, you know. Uh, so uh, you know, but that to me is a is a um, as a token of, of, of Roger's uh, fearlessness, he doesn't, you know, he may he may be uh, he may have these infirmities, but he doesn't care. He'll take on who he's going to take on. He hasn't lost any of his feistiness, uh, and he hasn't lost any of his authority. Uh, in fact, he's he's possibly gained both. So, uh, you know, in terms of what to say about it, I mean, God bless him. You know, he's a profile in courage. Um, that's that's about it. <laughs> well, according to some reports and Ebert himself, this amazing technology that has managed to scrape together a working vocabulary from his previous DVD audio commentaries, it could allow him to once again host his own television show. Uh, based on what we saw last week on the Oprah Winfrey show, they aren't at the point where Ebert can utilize this technology in a live or conversational setting. We only saw yeah. it during pre-recorded segments. But does this potential for another Ebert starring film criticism television program interest you at all? Yeah, well, yeah, I think it should interest anybody. I mean, um, uh, there's a lot of controversy over, you know, whether or not television-based film criticism, to a certain extent, delegitimized uh, film criticism as a art, as a craft, or what have you. Uh, it's a debate that's never going to be resolved. But, you know, if you have to have television movie critics, you know, I think Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were... Uh, were about as ideal as you can get. I, you know, I thought Neil Gabler did a good job too, and I think that Michael Phillips and A.O. Scott on the current at the movies do uh, great work. So, uh, you know, having Ebert back, fine, you know, great. You know, bring it on. Um, you know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly uh, reassuring to see how much he writes uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. He's still got it, definitely. And we can't oh, go yeah. a show. It, it's, de it's depressing. I mean, uh, you know, it, not just that he what he writes. Right. It's just you know the quality of what he writes. And you know, if you look on film writing on the internet, it's uh, so much garbage. <laughs> and people who simply like can't write. Period. Don't know how to write. Can't spell. Don't copy edit. You know. And and Roger, you know, blogging, you know, seems to effortlessly, and I know it's not effortlessly, but he seems to effortlessly uh, produce this immaculate copy and reams of it. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, if I if I can get off one blog post in a day that I think is really really good, you know, and really well considered, then I feel really great. And I usually can't even do that, so. Or I won't do it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just lazy. But you know, he's uh, he's voluminous. You know, him and his friend Jim Emerson, who also has a blog at the Sun Times. They are they they produce, man. They 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 walk the walk. So you know, God bless them. Well, uh, you know, and speaking of those blog. Uh, or the blogs that you might read, and before we move on to our Oscar discussion, I'm interested uh, in maybe hearing you recommend some of the essential movie blogs that you might read every day. Uh, my blog. <laughs> um, I love Dave Kerr's blog, which isn't much of a blog. He basically uses it to say when his latest New York Times DVD review is out. But the common threads on those blogs are fantastic, and they usually run to about three or four hundred every week and there's a group of film scholars and uh and critics and programmers who uh, and even some directors the uh uh joe dante's on the has a couple of comments on the current thread mm -hmm. um 
uh, who uh, who take the uh, week's topic and then uh, run with it, and it uh, goes all sorts of all over the place. Um, you know, I, I'm fond of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the blogs that feature writers who I think are really brilliant, these guys don't uh, update as much as they used to. You know, my friend Andrew Grant, a.k.a. Film Brain, doesn't... Uh, doesn't do as uh, much as I'd, I'd like to see him do, but he's obviously got other things going on. Running Benton Films, his uh, um, his new uh, his his DVD concern, and actually, oh, he has something. He has a few new things up, which is nice. Um, Girish Shambu, um, the House Next Door is a really good blog. Um, Richard Brody's blog, the, the New Yorker, uh, the front of the book guy, who's also the Godard biography. He I don't agree with him all the time. In fact, a lot of the time I don't agree with him at all, but uh, he's a smart guy and he updates regularly. Um, Cinema Asparagus, Craig Keller's blog, is very feisty, uh, always spoiling for some uh, some uh, polemicizing. Um, uh, Jim Emerson, uh, his blog, Scanners, is fantastic. Um, then there are the more popular things, Jeff Wells at Hollywood Elsewhere, who's uh, interesting, eccentric. <laughs> um, he's fun to pick fights with. We have kind of we've established a kind of uh, Fred Allen uh, uh, Edgar Bergen relationship. Uh, that might be a bit of a um, bit of a anachronistic reference, but uh, we 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 we're we're engaged in a uh, constant sort of half fake feud, not unlike those that were uh, part and parcel of old-time radio shows. And, uh, yeah, so uh, those those guys are all are all real good. And as um, you mentioned, you know, you have your blog, sumcamrunning.typepad.com. Yeah, some right, and... Uh, and I'll, be, I'll be actually live-blogging the Oscars from there on uh, Sunday night. I, I, I took a reader poll, and obviously it's a self-indulgent move, because if you take a reader poll at a blog like mine that has very sympathetic commenters, and you say, hey guys, you want me to live-blog the Oscars? I mean, of course, most of them are going to say, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> right. But I'm going to, because they asked. <laughs> well, good night. And uh, just because it occurred to me that it might be fun because everybody's going to tweet the Oscars now uh -huh. so for me live blogging it seems like a really nicely anachronistic old fashioned thing to do right <laughs> Right. Weird. Well, our guest is Glenn Kinney, uh, and like you, like we said, we you can read his blog at sumcamrunning.typepad.com. And look, we can't go a show with uh, them on the not so distant horizon without talking about the Oscars, which will air Sunday night on ABC. And uh, while we've got an expert on the line, we'll take full advantage of his knowledge. Now, I'm I'm just sort of interested in your general thoughts on the Academy Awards in terms of uh, whether they still matter to you as a film lover, whether they ever did, what they might stand for nowadays, and whether the Academy seems more interested in rewarding populist cinema. And celebrity over movies that might actually deserve the end of the year recognition and throughout the years you have taken advantage of your public forum to praise uh, more obscure underseen films often in the foreign film variety that oscar barely recognizes um, in your mind even if it's ultimately a television broadcast sort of hurting for ratings uh, from common folks like Corey and me um, should they still be heralded as the authoritative voice on the film year's output you know, should is a funny word, and, and your question is, is pretty multi-leveled. Um, I have, uh, in terms of taking Oscars seriously, I mean, existentially, I don't think I've ever taken them seriously, <laughs> and, uh, honestly. Awards, awards in the larger scheme of things, not even that much of a Awards really mean nothing. I mean, 
all you have to do is look at the things that haven't gotten awards to see, you know, what the value of an, any given award might actually be. I guess as a film buff, I, I, I uh, you know, I guess I stopped taking uh, the Oscar ceremony seriously around the time, uh, 78, when uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Steve Lawrence got up and sang that not even nominated medley, and they'd look at each other and they'd go, they all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. It wasn't nominated! I'm like, okay. And since then, I've just sort of enjoyed, you know, just sort of relaxed and enjoyed it for what it is, which is, you know, for me, uh, kind of a social thing. You know, I hang out with some friends, and, you know, we we do a sort of mystery science theater uh, dot com, you know, a mystery science theater assessment of it and, uh, you know, uh, have some good food and, and have a few laughs. And, you know, there was one year that I almost got into a fight with someone because <laughs> this guy was like, uh, I don't know, what's wrong with Crash, you know? Is it just like that it's not cool to like that movie? And I was on uh, medication at the time that uh, that made me even more temperamentally unstable than I normally am, and I got into a horrible fight with this guy who's a very sweet person. So... Uh, that hasn't happened since, uh, you know, I was cured of my condition and I'm not on the meds anymore, so it's all Wait, so what is wrong with Crash? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, oh, I'm God. sorry. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just not the movie that cool people like, I'm sorry. He was right, that was the thing, I just couldn't admit it, because, you know, the, the conspiracy is such that if you actually cop to it, you know, you, you blow the whole thing. Now, of course, it can be told. Uh, but, you know, when you go on, like, Armand White and the, uh, in the New York press, uh, and I talked about this in my auteurs column, which I, I tried to uh, avoid writing about uh, Oscars, especially in the auteurs, because the auteurs is a very high-brass site uh, and totally awesome, another website film lovers should check out. But, um, you know, Armand White in the New York press is like, uh, it's the, the well-heeled uh, members of the craven, closed societies of media <laughs> privilege are using the Oscars to make sure that the public stays culturally illiterate, intellectually docile, and aesthetically numb. And you know what? It's like, I, I hear this so damn much, I almost feel like saying, you know, if it upsets you so much, go out and buy a gun. And kill. 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 You know, start your damn revolution already. Just, you know, whatever you need to do, just stop, you know, talking this tripe, you know, and getting paid to talk about it. Just just do something, because I'm really tired of hearing your complaints, you know? Because they're, they're not cutting any ice. You, you, do the, you, you say the same thing every year, uh, you know, at every, every time there's an award ceremony, but it's all, mainly the Oscars. I mean, Armand White doesn't, doesn't get terribly upset about the Emmys or the Tonys or, you know, the People's Choice Awards or what have you, but <laughs> the public that is culturally illiterate, intellectually docile, and aesthetically numb, you know, just, you know, <laughs> build a bomb. Just shut up. It sounds like uh, he might be the guy that said that, made that remark about Crash at your party, you know, or you might have this, a <laughs> oh, similar no, Ar disdain. Uh, Armand, uh, Armand's got a completely different no. uh, argument against Crash. No, no, I know. Now, um, did you feel that there are any notable snubs in the Academy Award nominations this year? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, um, a lot of films that come out early in the year tend to get not noticed. 
um, it, uh, you know, it's, um, I thought, you know, I thought 2009 was a pretty good year for movies. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, let me, let me, let me, let me cover up my best of 2009 list. <laughs> um, so, you know, I didn't have too many complaints, but of course most of the movies, uh, were, you know, that I liked were, were obscure art films. Uh, <laughs> well, look, I think, I think in terms of what, how we might, um, categorize snubs, you kind of have to think of it two different ways. There, you know, you, you have your personal, uh, list of films that might not even realistically have a shot at getting nominated. Right. You just, you kind of know what movies they're going to go for. And right. of, of the movies that you do like that you knew the Academy was going to potentially recognize, was there a performance or uh, a technical achievement that stands out that, uh, did not make the cut? Well, you know, I mean, I would have liked to have seen a serious man get more nominations, uh, obviously, uh, and uh, maybe some more nominations for Inglorious Bastards. But I'm totally down with Up. Um, totally fantastic, Mr. Fox. Um, I didn't expect something like The Limits of Control to get anywhere, <laughs> you know. Nor did I expect Adventureland to get anywhere. Nor, you know, uh, Richard Brody, uh, the New Yorker guy, was really uh, quite irritated uh, that uh, James Gray's Two Lovers, which is a very fine film, by the way, and very interesting, but he was very upset that that didn't get any nominations. I, I thought I had no reasonable expectations of it getting nominations. I don't understand why people... I mean, I understand that, it, you know, it's disappointing in the, in the sense of life being disappointing, like they say at the end of Tokyo Story, but in terms of a practical disappointment, like a, a pragmatic, you are in the moment and this is disappointing you, did you really expect two lovers to get anything? No, I don't think you did, really. Right, it's not because, very realistic, especially considering the release date it had, um, which was yeah, fairly I mean, early sad. in the year. I wish, yeah. I wish the world were different. I wish life weren't disappointing. Right. But if it weren't, it wouldn't be life. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I, you know, wow, like you that's, said... In, that's uh, heavy. I can't believe I said that. Man. It is. It is. Let's take a minute. Let's take a minute to consider that. Uh, but, Corey, I think you, you may agree with me, I think, in terms of what really realistically could have been nominated and probably should have been, and it just really makes no sense as to why it wasn't. Um, one of my number one snubs was Marvin Hamlish's score for The Informant, yeah. uh, which I thought was great. I think Melanie Laurent uh, didn't get as much praise uh, from these precursor awards and uh, ultimately the Academy that she probably deserved being the heart and soul of Quentin Tarantino's uh, film that got recognized eight times otherwise by the Academy. And also, uh, I'll agree with you there on the serious man i think michael stuhlbarg should have uh, beefed up that best actor category which i think is kind of weak this year yeah all the acting in that is spectacular yeah. and, and 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 good for you for mentioning hamlish's uh, work in the informant although i have to point out uh you know a lot of people really object to the the, the score um not silly people <laughs> and, but i you know a lot of that score verges on and i mean this actually as a compliment um in a weird way, but a lot of score verges almost on self-plagiarism because a lot of the cues sound very much like the, the, the sort of slapsticky stuff that Hamlish composed for Woody Allen's Bananas. But I know for a fact that that was exactly the feel that Soderbergh wanted when he asked uh, Hamlish to do the score for the informant. He wanted an absurdist 
slapsticky kind of uh, thing going on there. So, well, I uh, think the score really functions as a window into the Mark Whitaker's, uh, you know, his bizarre and idealistic mind. You know, I think it's one of the more yeah. original scores in recent years, and it really serves as its own character and even a plot device. I really think it's a wonder that he did get the snub in this situation. And in terms of our picks, let's let's kind of go through them rather quickly. I think uh, there won't be uh, much disagreement in terms of the acting awards. The only challenge I see here, or a potential spoiler, is in the Best Actress category. It seems like Sandra Bullock is riding this uh, sort of inexplicable wave of momentum, thanks uh, in part, or probably uh, mostly due to the success, the financial success of The Blind Side. But I think if anybody can spoil her uh, parade here, it's probably Meryl Streep, who is, uh, you know, been waiting i guess it's been 27 years on the or no it's been a fairly long time since she won her last oscar is it 27 yeah, yeah. yeah i think yeah. it might be it was uh 83 when sophie's, sophie's choice, choice came out yeah yeah i think that's, so yeah. I think that's it, was about pretty, right. it was pretty shocking when when the river wild just failed oh man you hating on the river wild <laughs> i'm kidding i'm just <laughs> it wasn't really an Oscar type movie. She got a Golden Globe nod for that, though. Being I think. funny, she did indeed. Yeah. Boy, I can't. Boy, you, you guys can't get anything past you. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I, I, I think it's funny. I think I think Bullock will win because it's like the surprise that's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know. Um, and speaking of big Hollywood, I really don't know why those guys aren't crowing more than they 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 are. Um, you know, if 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 I were those guys, I would be taking complete credit for both financial success of of um, of The Blind Side and Sandra Bullock's Oscar nomination. But see, this is they can, they they're they're likely to they don't care about cutting off the nose despite their face. You know, the whole thing about the blind side getting this Oscar nomination is, is Hollywood show, trying to show that it still cares about values and these guys won't take credit for it because they're pissed off that the movie has a Bush joke in it so whatever well, you know, the the intriguing categories are typically the ones we've been able to predict quite easily in recent memory. You know, best best director and best picture, they've been fairly easy the past several years, but it looks like these are going to be sort of a fist fight between James Cameron's Avatar and Catherine Bigelow's Hurt Locker. But uh, my question to you is, do you foresee whoever opens the envelope this weekend uh, reading one of those two titles for the big film? Um, I have this nagging feeling in my gut suggesting that Quentin Tarantino's movie Inglorious Bastards with Oscar campaigning heavyweight Harvey Weinstein in its corner for the past several weeks and months, I think it may sneak in and spoil the evening for either of those movies. But realistically, you know what? I'd love to have what you're smoking. Uh huh. Because uh, I don't think Harvey. I think Harvey. You know, the Harvey's mojo was exhausted by getting that film out and the film making the money it did. I think Harvey's Oscar mojo. The reader thing last year, notwithstanding, mm-hmm. I think it's exhausted. I don't think he's got it anymore. I think it's going to be. I said this on MSN, and I'm going to stick to it. I think it's down to the Hurt Locker and Avatar, and I predict a split decision with Bigelow getting Best Director and Avatar getting Best Picture. Yeah. Now, bear in mind that I, when I was at Premier, I never won the, never once won the Oscar pool. Uh, so you know that's worth. Uh, worth 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 keeping in mind here, but I don't see bastards. The funniest thing about the the, the Harvey Weinstein bastards campaign is um, is his showing it to like every Jewish group in Los Angeles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's sort of like the 
base the the, the base pandering of of this concept. Um, I, I have to admit, um, tickles me slightly. Yeah, and I, I agree. It's, it's it's wrong. It's wrong. But um, I think it's funny. I agree I with know. you. I, you know, I think that realistically, it is going to come down to either Avatar, and I do agree that I think Avatar will win picture, and Bigelow will win uh, best director. But I'm just saying this, you know, with the, the 10 nominees and the preferential ballot that they're using this year, this is not out of the realm of possibility. I think it's more of a three-horse race than people realize. And ah, you're backtracking, man. Uh, I, I don't know, man. It, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Well, neither is a comet, you know, <laughs> scraping the earth. <laughs> right, right. Well, look, look, it, it's, got the, it's got the sag win. Crash had the sag win. Shakespeare in Love had the sag win. So, look, uh, you know. the, uh, the, the tea leaves. The yeah. tea leaves. I don't know. Well, I'm just know, saying, don't be surprised if it happens because you know what? the fact that we're the fact that we're talking about this uh-huh. points out something about um, about this year's Oscars that I that I think is kind of salutary in that these are pretty interesting movies. You know, yeah. Inglorious yeah. Bastards is not uh, is not a uh, standard issue Best Picture nominee sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's a it's a weirder and more interesting movie than that. Uh, the Hurt Locker is, uh, you know, uh, a more interesting movie than that. Avatar, even in its even in its in its uh, you know unstoppable blockbusterness, is still more interesting than your Garden Variety Best Picture nominee of the past ten or fifteen years. Well, our guest today is film critic Glenn Kenny. Remember, you can visit his blog at somecamerunning.tidepad.com. We'll return after a quick music break to give you our DVD picks. Don't go anywhere. Here's the Beach Boys with Heroes and Villains, which you might have heard in Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox, a nominee for the Best Animated Feature Oscar. Stick around. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These go to 11. Money point seven. Welcome back to the Movie Talk Show. You're listening to 90.7 FM, The Capstone. And joining us today is film critic Glenn Kinney, who's still on the line. And before you get to your choices uh, for DVD recommendations, Mr. Kinney, could I trouble you perhaps for your favorite films of 2009? Make it a top five, perhaps? Okay. Um, oh, I was so excited. I was. Uh, I heard you were playing uh, Frank Zappa's Apostrophe. Oh, all right. A right. favorite of mine. <laughs> um, I bought that when it first came out because I'm old. Uh, <laughs> now my dad told me last night. He says I've got that record. <laughs> I was okay. like, all right. Yeah, rub it in. Uh, <laughs> no, I remember, you know. Oh man, uh, what side one is? Um, that the title track kicks off side two. Side one is the whole uh, that nuke thing with Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, and then right. there's. St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. <laughs> oh gosh! Yeah, I still have the I still have the record. I tore in my wife with it sometimes. My top five of uh, 2009 were Summer Hours and Olivier Assayas picture, which has recently been picked up by Tom Hanks's Playtone for an American remake. Um, I actually emailed a a friend of mine who's a friend of Assayas's. Uh, and told him this, and uh, 
he wrote back, I'm sorry, I must have had too much coffee. I thought I read that you wrote me that Summer Hours had been optioned for an American remake by Tom Hanks. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, I haven't heard that news. It is true. <laughs> and um, But it's a wonderful film. It's it's very much an Asayas film. I'm a big Asayas fan. He can do no wrong in my book. But in this case, he just really hit it out of the park. Uh, it's, a, it's a very simple story about a family disposing of the artworks in the estate of a departed aunt, and it has a real Renoir-esque uh, feel to it. Uh, my number two film was A Serious Man, the Joel and Ethan Cohen picture, hilarious, exquisitely made. Uh, number three was Inglorious Bastards, a film I will make no apologies for, except as far as Eli Roth is concerned. So. <laughs> uh, my number four was Up. You're asking my 2009 best, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And number five was Fantastic Mr. Fox. Wow, uh, excellent. Yeah. Wow. Number six was Limits of Control, which Jim Jarmusch picture was I'm crazy about. I also liked Adventureland, a uh, South American picture called The Headless Woman, Kiroshi Kurosawa's uh, Tokyo Sonata, a two-little scene, Hong Sang-soo film called Night and Day, which you should just find it if you can and watch it. Two Lovers was... I, I did a top 17 because I'm weird. Uh, two Lovers was in there. Um... Drag Me to Hell. A lot of, you know, I thought it was a good year for movies. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, yeah, enjoyed a lot of stuff. You know, I, my, my, my philosophy about this year is that it was, like you said, it was a really good, really strong year, but not necessarily one of those great ones like maybe 2007 or even 2008, which had just a, a horde of movies we might consider great. I think that 2009 gave us a few great titles, but mostly really strong, really good ones that uh, almost reached that cusp. Um, if you have some DVD picks for us, we'd appreciate that. Mm. Well, coming up this week, this week is not the greatest thing ever, but the next couple of weeks are nuts. Um, you know, this week we've got, uh, yeah, Precious up in the air. Um, the Who documentary, The Kids Are All Right, is coming out this week in a remastered version. I haven't seen the, the new version yet, but, uh, uh, man, that's a fun, fun, fun movie. Uh for rock, just even just rock and roll fans, uh, what the, the week that's really going to be nuts is the uh, is the week of um, of March twenty third. Uh, then you're going to get some amazing uh, pictures on Blu-ray, um, and uh, those will be from Criterion. Days of Heaven, the Terrence Malick film, finally on Blu-ray. Um, Yojimbo and Sanjuro, the two Akira Kurosawa samurai pictures with Toshira Mifune. Yojimbo, of course, being a sort of samurai variant on Dashiell Hammett's novel Red Harvest and uh, forming the basis for uh, Fistful of Dollars. Um, and Sanjuro, its sequel. And a Nicholas Ray picture called Bigger Than Life, which is just one of the most startling things you'll see ever. James Mason plays a suburban dad who's a teacher who... Uh, starts undergoing cortisone treatments for a uh, chronic condition that he has, and these treatments drive him into a megalomaniac insanity that uh, breaks the family apart. And uh, Just a uh, fantastic, fantastic film. Uh, a real sort of film buff uh, specialty, but uh, very accessible uh, for, for anybody. Uh, so, yeah, the week of uh, the 22nd is also going to have the remastered African Queen with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine 
Hepburn, which I uh, had the privilege of checking out at a theatrical screening the other night. Just beautiful um, and um, spectacular restoration. Um, you have uh, Clash of the Titans um, coming out. Um, the Blu-ray, uh, well, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox will be out that week. Um, so, yeah, the 23rd is an amazing, amazing, amazing week for stuff. Save your, save your money. Uh, <laughs> get this. Um, it's just uh, really, uh, really going to be something else. Corey, why don't you uh, write us into our aptly titled craft services segment here? <laughs> well, uh, I have two picks from, from last week, from, from Tuesday. Um, first is Spike Jones, Where the Wild Things Are, a, a polarizing, but in my opinion, very worthwhile uh, attempt at a children's movie from Spike Jones. Um, it's very, very good. It's very nice to look at. It's very intellectually satisfying uh, in ways that are surprising, I think, for people who might have grown up with that book. And the second is uh, Hayao Miyazaki's new film, Ponyo, um, which played in theaters here in Tuscaloosa and was great to see on the big screen. Um, it's a loose reworking of The Little Mermaid. Um, but what is the main appeal of this should be the beautiful, beautiful watercolor styled animation um, from Miyazaki, who's consistently wonderful at this sort of thing, and, and kind of a, kind of an odd overlook uh, in the best animated feature category this year. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to overlook uh, Ponyo. Uh, I was, I was, I was getting into the uh, releases that were coming out this oh, coming Tuesday no, that, or the the week after that. Ponyo and. Uh, Ponyo and uh, Wild Things came out on uh, oh, this March past 2nd. week. No, yeah. no, he meant the uh, Academy for overlooking it, yeah. the animated feature oh, yeah, category. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, of course. Well, it's you know ridiculous. Right. right. Well, uh, Ponyo, you know, Ponyo is fabulous. Yeah. Uh, really gorgeous, and the Blu-ray is just spectacular. I haven't had a chance to see has that. The, yeah. Has the original the DVD also? I think has the original Japanese soundtrack. You can toggle between the two. Oh, nice. You know, what they do with uh, Miyazaki films uh, for the U.S. releases, they really do uh, a great job, very conscientious job with the dubbing. Because um, uh, Lasseter, John Lasseter, the Pixar guy who now oversees a lot of the uh, operations of uh, Disney in general, is a huge Miyazaki fan, and they take incredible care. And they get fantastic casts, and here they've got Kate Blanchett, Liam Neeson, Matt Damon, Matt Damon, uh, <laughs> Tina Fey, and people like that doing the uh, English language soundtrack voices. Well, and as for the BF Double Dose, let's stick with our Oscar theme from the past few weeks. I'm going to cheat a little bit and give you three. Let's go with the three films that were the only films to sweep the so-called big awards, including Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. It happened one night from 1934, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, and Silence of the Lambs in 1991. And the closest movie to pull that off since then was American Beauty in 1999, when Annette Bening lost out to Hilary Swank for Best Actress. And sadly, no film can add itself to that prestigious list at this year's ceremony so we'll have to wait. And it's interesting, you know, you bring up Blu-ray and uh, what you said about Days of Heaven. I remember reading one of your blogs back when Blu-ray began to emerge. Um, you wrote, I, you seemed kind of unsure about it at that point or you just hadn't quite taken the plunge. And you said, I'll put my Days of Heaven criterion up against any Blu-ray uh, your standard Days of Heaven uh, criterion that you had up against any Blu-ray release, but it seems like you've really embraced Blu-ray yeah, for what it is. I, I don't think I actually put it quite so uh, <laughs> arrogant. Right, no, uh, no, no, I know. Um, uh, I was just astonished by the standard def version of Days of Heaven, and it was fantastic, and I got that 
right at the point where I had gotten a uh, a new plasma screen. So uh, I had seen uh, actually uh, high def. The, the the actual transfer the Criterion did of uh, of a. Um, Ah uh, yeah, no, you're right. Here it is. Uh, um, <laughs> but let me let me let me get some context here. Um, oh yeah, it was right before I was fired too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know. Um, oh, in the context of how good a job Criterion did with standard definition, uh, you know. And I was actually writing about how excited I was that Criterion was going Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I said, Criterion does an astonishing job in, in standard definition. I'll put my Criterion days in heaven up against just about any high-definition format disc I've seen. Mm-hmm. So the mere prospect of what high-def they'll do in high-def has me drooling. And they did this, this is something I wrote in May of 2008. Uh, and they did not disappoint, and they haven't disappointed. And it'll be two years uh, that they've been doing Blu-ray now. Uh, and when I went to Criterion in the fall of uh, 2008 to see their operation, Lee Klein, their their technical honcho, showed me, uh, you know, the, the the standard def Days of Heaven was mastered from a high def master that they created, and they didn't know at the time if they were going to be able to put out their own Blu-ray of it because the licensing agreement was such that Paramount had the right of first refusal to put out the high definition Blu-ray version of of the picture. Uh, and if they decided they wanted to do it, they could do it uh, under their own label. They decided they didn't want to. This freed up Criterion, and the, so now you're going to have the Criterion Blu-ray on Criterion with the Criterion es- extras coming out uh, at, in May 20 and May 23rd. It looks amazing. Um, it looked amazing then. It looks amazing now. So I'm, I'm I'm sold on Blu-ray. The stuff that's coming out is so unexpected in terms of you know. When Blu-ray first emerged, you were thinking, you know, God, it's only going to be horrible blockbuster garbage or things that they kind of want to, like, uh, restore the profit margin. on. Like, you, you just think it's going to be all the big box stuff, is, is like the sixth day and stuff. Uh, and, and, and by and large, it actually is. But when Criterion got into it, it definitely changed the game. And, and if you have a foreign region Blu-ray player, you're even in better shape because you've got guys like... Um, Masters of Cinema, Artificial Eye, uh, putting out stuff on Blu-ray, and a lot of it just looks great. You know, in April, the Blu-ray thing is going to have... It's amazing. You'll be able to see Battleship Potemkin. Uh, yes, you know, um, there'll be some Ozu stuff coming out on Blu-ray in Britain. Um, Minor- you know, uh, Minority Report, Tokyo Story, Summer Hours, Godard's Viva Savi, all in Blu-ray. You know, in terms of telling people that they should all go out and get it, in this economy, I'm not going to say any such thing. You know, do what you have to do. I mean, I'm lucky because, you know, I do spend uh, what I what I spend on on DVDs is stuff that I can you know give to my accountant uh, the year afterwards and get a tax deduction on because it's a professional expense. And yeah, I do get a lot of stuff. I still do get comped on a lot of stuff. So I'm hardly in a position to. <laughs> to like you know dictate to people you must get blu-ray but if you can if you can get it and you can afford it and it it really is uh a, you know there's enough stuff that serious cinephiles love that's out there that that yes it does it will the investment will pay off in terms of of seeing stuff in incredible definition 
M. I got the, uh, you know, Criterion is putting out a DVD of Fritz Lang's M, and, uh, but Masters of Cinema has put it out in Europe, and uh, their, uh, their version is uh, region-coded, so it can't be played on American DVD player because of this licensing agreement that's going to allow Criterion to put it out in May. But as a preview, it's the same HD encode, and M is amazing. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's better than a 3D movie uh, in in Blu-ray. It's just fantastic. Um, so when you have stuff like that, uh, it's just uh, yeah, you feel like you're living in a you know. There's so much out there that will never be recovered, that will never be restored, that will never be re- 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 seen again, and it's really really sad. But by the same token, there's so much out there happening that's coming out that's just fantastic that it's just a really good time to be a cinephile. Well, I think I might make that plunge fairly soon, especially now as the uh, players become a little bit cheaper. Corey's already done that. Um, he, he gets to watch Blu-ray all day, all, you know, <laughs> all night, and yeah. I'm, I'm highly jealous of you two. And as I read your blog and you're, you know, you're, you're taking these photos of the latest Criterion Blu-ray that you're about to watch, I'm just like, God, I need to do it. Um, but either way, Glenn Kenny, uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday morning to join us here on our University Radio Movie Talk Show. Um, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, thanks for coming back. You appeared uh, a couple of years ago to talk about the films of 2007, actually. I think the last time you were on, you talked about Stephen Chow's movie, CJ7, and The Bank Job back when that was out. So, uh, fun stuff. But, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on, and maybe we can do this again in the future. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I had a great time with you guys, and I hope, yeah, I hope to talk with you again soon. Yes, sir. And uh, coming up, we will have some announcements here on the 90.7 Movie Talk Show. In the meantime, we have some Ramones. This is We Want the Airwaves. We will be right back. What do you think they do there? They don't drink milkshakes, I assure you. 90.7. Back here on the Movie Talk Show, time to wrap things up. Time for a few announcements. Opening at the Cobb Hollywood 16 in Tuscaloosa this week, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, both in 3D and 2D, and Antoine Fuqua's police drama Brooklyn's Finest. Uh, The remaining Oscar nominees you can see on the big screen in Tuscaloosa are Avatar and The Young Victoria. And we're holding a contest where you, the listener, can name our show. Of course, we'd like to keep it film or conversation friendly, though there are several words we will not allow, those being movie, film, screen, cinema, or real. Email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com with your suggestions. The winner will be announced on the subsequent episode once we've chosen our title. We're at a point now where it's really time to name this thing, so fire away. If you have any feedback, again, you can email us at 90.7movies at gmail.com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at 97movies, that's 907 movies uh at, at, at or twitter.com slash nine nine movies nine zero nine zero seven it's, <laughs> it's important to to note there's not the point there right uh we might even read a comment or two on the air so keep them coming and we will podcast this and other episodes of the show. You can read those at my blog, benaround.tumblr.com. Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R-B-E-N. 
A-R-O-U-N-D.tumblr.com. Corey and I also frequently write film-focused Facebook notes, so if that's your preference, there's that. You can read my and Corey's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in the Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. We'd once again like to thank our guest, Glenn Kinney. You can catch his blog at somecamerunning.typepad.com, uh, and we can also read him at theauteurs.com and on msn.com. And uh, I would encourage people to also maybe check out Synecdoche, New York's DVD. There's a special feature on there where uh, Glenn Kinney leads a roundtable discussion on Charlie Kaufman's film. It's a really terrific conversation. And be sure to catch us next Saturday at 9 a.m. here on 90.7 FM, where sadly, Corey will not be with us. He's going on vacation. But joining me will be Adam Kempinar, the co-host of the terrific podcast Film Spotting out of NPR Chicago. And you can find that at filmspotting.net. And until then, thank you very much for joining us. This is 90.7, the movie talk show. We'll be back next week. (laughs) Thank you.